Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Thank you, Eric and Krista. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Uh, we've been in in the series in January, kind of just doing some RC foundations, just some back to the basics about our Christian faith and what we believe. And we have been looking at the parable of the prodigal son, if you remember, and I think I have it on the screen, we've been talking about there's three ways to live. Most of the time we just think that there's two ways to live. You're either a good person or you're a bad person. But the parable of the prodigal sons teaches us that there's actually three ways to live. You cannot just reject God by being very, very bad, but you can reject God by being very, very good. And last week we delve and dug deeper into that side of things of religion, of digging deeper into what it looks like to reject God by being very, very good. And this morning I want to spend some time just looking at this other category of what we would call irreligion or outright rejecting God. What does that look like? And in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus says this, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Why? Because out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, and slander. This morning, I want to talk to us about the importance of our hearts and what that looks like in a total rejection of God and how we actually come back in the gospel, the primacy of the gospel, to overcome that rejection. So Father, help us just in these next few moments to hear from you, have our hearts encouraged, challenged, convicted, not in how bad we are or how much we need to get better, but in how much the grace of Jesus covers us. Because it'll be easy to hear this this morning and to be self-focused once again. And help us to put our attention and our eyes and our hearts back on Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. The first thing I want to say is that before we can even dig into the the side of religion and irreligion, we have to understand what the Bible means when it says hearts. The Bible is not silent about the nature of our heart. The heart is used over 750 times in the scripture, and it's not necessarily referring to the physical organ in your body. And as Christians, you know that. When we say invite Jesus and ask him into your heart, we're not asking you to like open the door of your physical organ, allow him in, close it. What do we mean when we say hearts? In, in Scripture, the heart is, it, it directs things, it thinks things, it acts things, it believes things, it thinks things. Like the heart is this control center of our entire life. It is the, the center of our affections. It is the seat of our affections. Everything that we value, everything that we delight, everything that we cherish in, these are the affections of our hearts. 
and the affections of our heart are demonstrated by the way that we live our lives. In fact, you're familiar with this passage, maybe in Proverbs chapter 4, that Solomon says, above all else, what? Go to church. No. Above all else, guard your heart. Why? Because everything you do flows from your heart. So this means no one ever does random actions. You ever think to yourself, why did I just do that? I have no idea why I just did that. Okay. For people who we say we have no idea why you did that, we have places for you. Okay. Other than that, there's always a reason why you do things. When my kids were young, I would ask them, why did you just hit your brother, hit your sister? This is an example. This is not a true story. There is a true story. I'm going to leave it behind, though, okay? This is a general idea. And I'd be like, what are you doing? Why would you do that? I don't know. You have no idea why you just smacked your brother in the face. No. So you just decided to walk up to him and just go, slap him. You know, go Will Smith. And they're like, yeah, I just decided to do that. Right? But no. I'm like, okay. Well, I'm going to give you a few minutes to think about it. So they sit down, and I have to come back a few minutes later. Why did you do that? I don't know. Some of my kids were more stubborn than others. Some sat there for literally hours. Others figured out reasons much quicker. But the point is, is that you don't just randomly do something. You don't just spend your money. You don't just go places. You don't just do certain things because it's just random. No, it's all deep in your heart. In fact, this is what Matthew 15, Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. Not where you go defiles a person. Not what you drink defiles a person. Not what you eat. Not what music you listen to. What actually defiles you is what comes out of you, your heart. And out of your heart comes all of these bad things. Out of the heart comes hatred and murder and all types of sexual morality and theft. In fact, Jesus will say this in Luke chapter 6. I have it on the screen as well. He says this, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. <clears throat> Frigs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus is saying that what is at the very center of you determines what comes out of you. Of you. And this makes all the sense in the world that if we want to change what comes out of us, we want to change what's happening in our lives, then we have to actually change at the root level, at the center of who we are, and that is our heart. There's something else about the heart. The heart always has what I want to call an ultimate affection. There is Something that your heart is centering on at all times. In fact, I would say it this way on the screen. Everyone possesses an ultimate faith commitment in something that they are looking to for rescue, for redemption, that dictates all of their actions. This is the essence of what it means to be human. 
The essence of what it means to be human is to be constantly yearning and longing for something to rescue you. This is why God, how God made us in the Garden of Eden. He made Adam and Eve as constant worshipers, as people who were constantly having their affections set on him. When Adam and Eve rebelled, we didn't stop becoming unceasing worshipers. It's not like when Adam sinned, all of a sudden that worship, unceasing worship component in his heart just stopped. No, what happened was his unceasing worship component no longer centered on God. It centered on something else. So you at all times, every day of your life, have an ultimate faith commitment. Something that you are worshiping because we were made to be unceasing worshipers of the creator God. And if you think about this deeply, you know that you are, I don't, this is not me too, okay? Just everyone be okay for a minute. You know you're jacked up. You know you're a mess. This is why very few of us like to just be alone. If we're alone, we've got to be on our phone. If we're alone, we've got to be doing something. But just to actually be still and be alone is one of the most terrifying and terrible things in our lives because we know we are jacked up in a mess. And so in order to deal with that, in order to deal with the guilt and the shame of that deep down reality that you're all messed up, you have to find something to deal with all that shame. You have to deal with something, to deal with that, you've got to find someone or something to rescue you. Okay? This is not any of us, but this is why we're such NFL sports geeks. Because when our team is winning, it gives us a sense of identity. We're football people. We're Giants fans. And we made the playoffs, okay? I mean, that's like winning the Super Bowl for us. And I know others of you out there are like, today is a big day for you. And it is. And go enjoy it. Have fun. I'm like, I'm going to watch the football games too, probably. But the point is, is it's not that it's the football game. It's that are you looking to sports to build an identity, to rescue you, to say, I am something because I belong to this group, or I am something because I have this. Another way to look at this relationship that I'm speaking of is to think of things about glory and sacrifice. Whatever your heart finds to be glorious, you will make sacrifices for. If you find your heart to be glorifying and, and, and glorying in your spouse... You will do what? You will make sacrifices for your spouse. If you are glorifying or finding glory in your bank account, you're going to make sacrifices throughout the week on what you're buying. If you find your family to be the most glorious thing, you'll sacrifice for your family. Just ask yourself what you sacrifice for and you will find what you actually glory in. And so the heart is like central to every person. It's consistently looking for something to rescue, to deal with its inadequacy and with its insufficiency. And we're all looking for meaning and purpose. And because of sin, and apart from the gracious movement of the Spirit, we will always look for something other than God for that rescue. 
And so what we're looking to do is put our trust and faith in the good news of Jesus to actually rescue us. That is the only thing that will provide meaning and satisfaction. Which means this, church, when we ask you, when the Bible asks you to put your faith in Jesus, to follow Jesus, it's not necessarily asking you to do something brand new. What it's asking you to do is to stop putting your trust in money, to stop putting your trust in your job, to stop putting money in your friendships, in your bank account, to stop looking to that for rescue, and to actually put your heart and trust and commitment in Jesus for your rescue. So faith in Jesus is not like, oh, I've never had faith before. I just need to start. No, you have had faith your whole life. And the Bible is telling you to stop looking to created things for meaning, for satisfaction, because it will never satisfy. I've used this example, and I know it's a little bit old and outdated, but it still works. Because we all think, no, I'm going to be the... This is how dumb we are. No, I'm going to be the first person to actually look at a created thing and find meaning. Right? I mean, this is why we keep looking to other things than God. Because we think in that, we're going to find meaning and satisfaction. And we're like, we know everyone else has never done that. But I'm going to be the first one to do it. So let's do it. And so, a few years ago on 60 Minutes, love him, hate him, I don't care. Tom Brady was on 60 Minutes. And I don't know if you know about Tom Brady, but he's pretty successful at what he does, okay? Probably more successful than any of us in this room are ever going to be at our jobs. He has more money combined than the entire state of Virginia, probably. He definitely has more money than all the people at Redemption Church combines. And I know he just got divorced, but he used to have the hottest model in the world as his wife, right? Okay, Tom Brady, way more successful than you ever be, have more money than you'll ever have, and have the hottest spouse that you've ever wanted in your life. And you know what he said on 60 Minutes? There's got to be something more than this. So I'm just going to tell you this. You be the first person to find all meaning and all joy, and you be better than Tom Brady. Go ahead. Try it. You can go ahead. I, I, I... I know I'm stupid, and I still do that, but I'm at a big picture level saying, Scott, that is not going to do what you want it to do. And so the essence of why we have hearts that are unceasingly finding worship in things other than God is sin. But let's look at sin from maybe a little different perspective than we normally do. We just did a whole series on sin a few months ago. And most of us tend to think of sin as like breaking the Ten Commandments, lying, stealing, cheating, not honoring your parents. And to be sure, these actions are sinful. However, sin is far more, uh, uh, far more pervasive. It is far greater than we actually give credit for. Underneath every system, underneath every belief system... There is sin. And this sin at the root of all sin is what we're going to call idolatry. The Bible does not consider idolatry to be one sin among many. In fact, the Bible actually calls idolatry the root of all sin. 
all of our failures, as I have on the screen, to trust God wholly or to live rightly are due at root to idolatry, something we make more important than God. Idolatry, simply defined as this, is anything that we look to in our hearts for rescue that is not God himself. In fact, Romans chapter 1 on the screen, Paul describes it this way. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They know there's a God, they know they should give their lives to him, and they know that if they gave their lives to him, everything would be happy. But you know what they do? They decided not to do that. Why? Because they wanted to be wise. I have a better way. And becoming wise, Paul says, they became fools. And this is how foolish we are in our sin. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Resembling what? Ourselves. Mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. So, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God and the Greek here is actually for the lie, which is going back to the Garden of Eden. And they worshipped and served the creator, the creature rather than the creator. What does Paul say? We are so sinful that we in our minds and our hearts would actually rather make something and give worth to that than to actually acknowledge the true God of the world. And this is what idolatry is. It's at the core, it's at the essence, it's at the foundation of all sin. Martin Luther, the great reformer, defines an idol this way. A god, small g, means, and it's on the screen, means that from which we are to expect all good, to which we are to take refuge in all distress, so that to have a god, to have an idol, is nothing else than to trust and believe him from the whole heart. As I've often said, confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. What's he saying? Whatever your confidence is in, whatever the faith of your heart goes to, that is either making God God or if it's not him in an idol. So if your faith and trust be right, then your God is also true. If your trust be false and wrong, then you have not the true God. For these two things go together, trust, faith, and God. What you set your heart on, what you put your trust on, is properly your God. This is, Eric did this with the kids this morning, but what is the very first commandment? Remember? Anyone remember the first commandment? Eric? You shall have no other gods before me. Why is that the first commandment? Because if God is your only God, guess what you will obey? Commandments 2 to 10. But you've only broken commandments 2 to 10 because you've already first broken commandment 1. Which means the first commandment to honor God, to love God, to have no other gods before him is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. The heart, when it is rightly disposed to the first commandment, will keep all the rest of the commandments. So, at the essence of idolatry... Is not at the essence of sin is idolatry, and we're not talking about far eastern cultures with statues. 
we're talking about images of metaphorical images of things that we value and trust. And it's so weird, like we think like Far East, like those people are so, you know, have idols everywhere. They have like rituals and they wear certain clothes and they have certain statues and they worship different gods. And they all gather together in this place and bow down to a statue. Okay, not to bang on this anymore, but I'm going to one last time. Anyone else know a place in America we all gather together, we all wear a certain garb, and we all start chanting and celebrating because there's people on a field throwing a pigskin football around? It's a temple. It's just a very different temple. We are idolaters. Humanity are idolaters at our core. And when we look at the idea of idolatry... It's good to be reminded of the end of idolatry. Because idolatry, when we look to certain idols, it, it creates these grand delusions. Idolatry will make something look uh, powerful and make it appear to be amazing and it's going to be awesome. And so we give ourselves to it. But I want you to know these idols, when they're exposed, they provide a false and fleeting identity. When you grab onto an idol, it will give you a purpose, a meaning, an identity for a season. But eventually, the idol that you're putting your trust in cannot bear the weight of your worship. It's going to fail you. It will not be able to live up to what it's promised. And you know that in every reading of your life that you've looked to something and you finally got it or you're getting close to getting it and then... You're like, now that I have it, I need something else. It's a fleeting identity. Number two, it's good to be reminded that when you worship idols, Psalm 135 says you become just like them. The idols of the nations, the psalmist says, are things made of silver and gold. They're made by human hands. And the, and the images that they're making, he says, they have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes and they can't see. They have ears, but can't hear. And he says this, and those who make the idols are just like them as are all who trust in them. So think of it this way. The psalmist is saying, you make an idol, you become just like the idol. And you're like, that's not true. I can speak. I can hear. But the idol is a picture of you being so spiritually insensitive that you can't hear God. You can't speak to God. You can't see God. And just as that idol has all of those senses visibly demonstrated in the actual objects, they can do none of those things. And when you put your trust in an idol, you can't see God, you can't touch God, you can't taste God, you can't hear God. And so you become just like the idol, insensitive to God. And it's also be good to be reminded that idols enslave you in ever-increasing ways. They increasingly enslave you more and more and more. And we keep paying the enormous sacrifices they demand for our loyalty. And we keep hoping against hope that they're not going to let us down, but they always do. One Old Testament theologian says this, false gods never fail to fail. The trouble is we never fail to forget this fact. They always fail, and we're the dumb ones who always forget that they fail. 
And ultimately, what idols do is they deprive you of being a human. God made us as humans. And a true human, I'm not going to get into the philosophical side of that, but true humanity is to be rightly related to God, so you can be rightly related to others and all of creation. And when you give yourself to an idol, it actually robs you from actually being a true human. So this Old Testament theologian goes on to say, what a travesty it is when humans, who themselves are the work of God's hands, were made to rule over everything, to rule the works of God's hands. And instead, these people who were made to rule over God's works, choose to worship the work of their own hands. And so idolatry distorts, demeans, and diminishes our humanity. See, we need to be reminded over and over again of the utter futility of what happens when we put our trust in idols. <clears throat> so what is your idol? What do you put your trust in? On the screen, I have some questions for you to just begin thinking through. Jen and I came home from Charlottesville yesterday, and we were talking a little bit about this, and she asked me, what is my idol? And I said, "Don't. we're not going there now. But it made me just stop and think, what are my idols? I got exposed from idolatry this morning before our staff meeting. Fifteen people right there calling me out. I'm like, oh, yeah, there's my idols. What is your greatest nightmare? What do you worry the most about? Is it your bank account? Is it losing your kid? Is it losing your spouse? What's your greatest nightmare? What do you worry about? What if it happened and you're like, oh my gosh, that can never happen? What if I failed or lost it would cause me to feel like I don't even want to live? What gets you out of bed? What keeps you going? What do you rely on for comfort when things are going bad or get difficult? What do you think about most easily? What does your mind go to when you're free? An archbishop over in England wrote this. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. What do you enjoy, what do you enjoy daydreaming? Is that, did I forget the A? I'm going very southern, just bout. What do you daydream about? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? You develop potential scenarios about career advancement, materials, dream home, relationship. And note this, one or two daydreams is not an inclination of idolatry, indication of idolatry. It's not like if you thought, I want a big home, that you're worshiping your big home. This is like the constant meditation of your heart. What do you habitually think about to joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? That is your God. Or what prayer unanswered would make you seriously think about turning away from God? God, if you don't do this, I'm out. That's your idol. See, idols are so pervasive they're there all the time. That the, our heart, as one theologian says, is a constant idol factory. It is just constantly 
creating things for us to put our trust in. So what do we do? This sounds very, very awful. Since all idolatry is sin and fundamentally idolatry is a failure to love God with all of our heart, the answer to overcoming our idolatry must be found in the gospel. In other words, all true change must occur at the affection heart level. If you worship money and money is your idolatry, how are you going to stop worshiping money? Stop making it? Make less of it? Give more away? All those things might be good things, but at the end of the day, that doesn't change your heart. You're still worshiping, you're still going to worship money. Or you're going to put your trust in something else. Maybe you worship pornography. And so you need like all the different covenant eye, which is great, by the way. And you need to buy a flip phone and you need to get rid of your computers. All good steps. But if idolatry is rooted at the heart level, just getting rid of externals is not going to do anything for your heart and nothing is actually going to change. And so those are all great first steps and things that we should be doing. But if we don't get to the deep motivational levels of the heart, if we don't get deeper than just I love money or I love pornography, why do you love money? Why do you love pornography? Why do you love your job? Because even in the Old Testament, God is concerned about getting to the heart. In Ezekiel chapter 14, Ezekiel is the people of Israel, of Judah, are in Babylon. <clears throat> and so they're no longer in their homeland. And this is what Ezekiel chapter 14 <clears throat> says. Certain elders came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel. And this is what God said to Ezekiel. These men have taken idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity, their sin, before all of Israel. And so God says to Ezekiel, any one of those people in the house of Israel who takes idols into their heart and sets a stumbling block for the rest of the nation, he will not answer. God is not going to answer. And so the answer that God says to Ezekiel is, tell these people to repent and turn away from your idols And turn away your faces from all the abominations. See, even the Old Testament, God is saying to the nation of Israel, I don't care that you just get rid of idols. I want you to actually get to the heart. I want to get to what these people are worshiping. He wants to lay hold of their being, not just their actions. Which means this, that all change in life actually occurs at that deep affection level. True, lasting, meaningful change has to occur not with just picking fruit and apples and oranges off your bad tree. But it's actually changing the fundamental root structures of your heart. I have a long quote and I have it on the screen. But it's like the greatest quote of all time and it's size two font so you can't read it. You're going to have to come sit up front if you can't. That's how I get all of you back real Baptists to move forward. An old theologian from the 1700s wrote this. It's seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. Did any of, your, any of you have a problem with sin and one day it just was gone? That's not the normal experience, right? You don't just wake up one day and be like, you know what? 
I no longer want to rob banks. I'm all done. At least, it's very seldom that this is done through the instrumentality of reasoning or by the force of mental determination. What he's also saying is, very rarely do people have enough mental, moral fortitude to change. Some people do have the moral fortitude to make a different decision permanently. But he goes on to say, but what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. And one taste may be made to give way to another and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection in the minds. What's he saying? You may not be able to get rid of it, maybe dispossess it. And the way you dispossess it is by having another stronger appetite, another greater affection take its place. And so he gives this illustration. And it is thus that the boy ceases at length to be a slave as appetite. But why? Because a more mature taste has brought it into subordination. So the youth, the young man, the young girl, ceases to idolize sensual pleasure. But why? Because the idol of wealth has gained the ascendancy, has become more dominant, more captivating. And even the love of money can cease to have mastery over the heart because it is drawn into a world of ideology and politics, and now he's lured over by a love of power and moral superiority. But there's not one of these transformations which the heart is left without an object. Pause. Do you know what he just did? He just prophesied 200 years ahead of time the American dream. The American dream, go to high school, begin to learn how to party, go to college, and what do you do at college? Sensual pleasure. Live it up. But you know why there's not 40-year-olds everywhere all over America doing sensual pleasure, living it up anymore? I mean, they do occasionally, but they're not doing it in college. Why? Because something else gained ascendancy, and what is it? What does he say it is? Money. You got to get a job. And now, money is way more important than partying and sensual pleasure, so you give yourself to that. So now you only occasionally do that, but you give yourself to money. And in America, if you've made enough money, where do you have to go? Politics. I'm making no statement, but I'm making a statement. You know what I'm talking about. You see that lived out every day of your life. People change. But the only change when something greater has captured the affections and so he says this, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. A new power, a new affection will drive out the old affection. And if, if you're worshiping idol, sorry, sorry, let's just say sensual pleasure that he uses in this illustration. And you're like, I want to stop doing that. I want to be a good person. If you don't replace that with the gospel, you're going to replace it with what? Something else, which is just as bad. But it may look like you're better. It may look like you're more moral. It may look like you're the older brother. But the only way to dispossess it is with the power of a new affection. And so, he goes on to say, it is only when admitted into the number of God's children through faith in Jesus Christ that the spirit of adoption is poured out on us, it is then that the heart is brought under the mastery of the one great predominant affection is delivered from all the tyranny of its former desires. And the only way that that deliverance is possible 
What's he saying? I summarize it this way. The gospel is the only affection that actually drives out all other affections and is itself unconquerable. You will never find a greater affection. You may forget how great that affection is and run after this for a moment, but the Spirit of God, because of His adoption and you putting, Him putting you into His family, will bring you back and say, no, the gospel is actually the greatest affection and there is nothing greater I could actually have. And because we're humans, three minutes later, we forget it. And the Spirit of God so kindly wakes us up and says, no, you're looking to something that is robbing you of humanity, taking away from you, enslaving you even more. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm such an idiot. Thank you. And yes, the gospel is the greatest affection. It actually drives out every other affection. And when it is your affection and you are enjoying it, there's nothing greater in your life because you're actually becoming what God made you to be, a human rightly related to him. So to replace idols, <clears throat> so they cannot grow back. We must learn to rejoice on the slide, on the next slide. We must learn to rejoice in the particular thing that Jesus brings that replaces the particular idol of your hearts. I'm constantly, <clears throat> I, I've told this story once or twice, but I just, I just have this deep, deep desire to win everything. If it's checkers, I'm winning. If it's ping pong, I'm winning. If I think you're going to beat me at ping pong, I may not even play you because I want to win. And like that just like controls my life, winning. And there's a whole bunch of side trails to that. But you know what I'm constantly reminding myself of over and over and over? Scott, your victory is not in blank. Your victory is in Jesus. And now that you're in Jesus, you've already won everything. You can just calm down. You've won. You don't have to strive to win anymore. You're free. And that is so freeing to actually having to stop trying to compete, even though I'm constantly competing, to be reminded that what Jesus brings me to defeat the idol of my heart of just wanting to win everything is the promise of victory that I have in Jesus Christ because we are more than overcomers. So when you're in the midst of your misery, when you're in the midst of your disobedience, your temptation, begin asking yourself, how does what Jesus provides for me give me what I really and truly long for? And ask for the Spirit to show you how deep and mighty and great that affection is. Father, thank you for Jesus. And not that just that he died for us, but that death and that resurrection changes the fundamental structures of our heart. And because we're human and still on this side of the second return of Jesus, we constantly are looking to other things Boy, we want to thank you that the Spirit of God continually pulls us back. And so may this morning be a reminder to all of us of the beauty of Jesus, the, the joy that Jesus brings us, the freedom that he actually offers to us in the gospel to rest, to stop striving, to stop looking for meaning in other places. 
why Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will give us rest. And so we just come praying that Jesus, as we look to you, that you'll give us that rest. And we do pray, even as we look into next week, that the power of this gospel, of Paul's gospel, of Jesus' good news. would be the power as witnesses of Jesus' resurrection this week by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.